Welcome to what we're calling Good Returns TV. My name's Philip McAllister and I'm the publisher of Good Returns and Asset Magazine. The idea of this series is to create a regular video show, a magazine style news show that we'll be showing to you through the website Good Returns. The idea is that you know often you'll read about what people are saying either on the site or in the magazine but here you can actually get to meet them in person, see them and hear about what they're saying in their own words. The idea of Good Returns TV is, is experimental at this stage. We're really interested to get your feedback on whether it's something you like and also if we can commercialise it. We'll, we'll shoot a couple episodes and, and see how it goes and, and we're really keen on your feedback. The first series we're filming is down here in Wellington at the, the CIFA conference. Um, in, in this episode you'll meet Murray Weatherston from CIFA who's going to talk about the Financial Advisors Review Act. You'll also meet from Australia um, and from Platinum Asset Management, one of their fund managers. And also the boss from Harbour Asset Management is going to come in and join us later on in the show too. So please enjoy it and get, do give us your feedback on what you think of the show. Joining me now is Andrew Baskan from Harbour Asset Management. Harbour um, has over $3.3 billion in funds under management at the moment and recently won the Morningstar Fund Manager of the Year Award for the second consecutive time. Welcome Andrew. Look, um, Tommy, you're, you're talking about active management and why now is the time for active management. What's, what's your thesis behind that? Well, look, we've had five years of terrific returns, in fact six or seven, for the last five years. Very solid returns, not just in New Zealand equities but globally. Mm -hmm. And when we reflect on that, why those returns have been so solid, about half the reason, in my opinion, has been the strong rally in bonds. So bond yields have fallen, interest rates have been very low, central banks have been effectively flooding the world with a lot of liquidity. So as a result, equity valuations have risen by about 50%. So for example, take the US market. The price earnings ratio five years ago was 12. Now it's close to 18. Wow, it's a 50% increase. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been quite benign and, and, and you know, I guess the markets and the returns have come reasonably easy, I, I guess you'd argue. That, that's changing now, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, look, I think half the returns historically have come from Australian bond yields. Mm. And that has been the easy win for investment managers. Half's come from what I call active management or mm. returns from investing in companies. As we look forward, we, we don't want to make any predictions as to where bond yields or interest rates are going, but I don't think we have to. Mm. Because it's hard to imagine that you get another 50% increase in valuations from here. So like a financial planner when they're thinking about you know, how they're dealing with clients and what they're saying at the moment and, and, and what they should be doing with them, we're at a juncture of change now you'd argue and it's time for them to be changing the message a little bit? Yes, my view is it's been quite easy just being in the market yeah. and you've got what we would call technically a beta trade, mm -hmm. just being in the market. Mm -hmm. From now on and I think there's a strong case to revert to active management and that's actually looking at what you're buying thinking about which types of style or companies are really going to provide returns in the next five to ten years. Mm. So, so it's a time for much more engagement around um, what's happening. The, it's interesting too, you know, the political risks. We've had so many stories out there. We've had Brexit, we've had Trump. I mean, we've got our own elections coming up. Um, we've just had the French elections. The markets seem to be looking through all this risk. Why do you think that is? We just haven't had a time with volatility as low as it's been. In fact, people might have even forgotten what volatility used to be five or ten years ago. 
Mm. And when we look at that, we think, well, we've had all these political noise bits and pieces, but that doesn't disturb the market. So what's actually happening? The data has been a bit Goldilocks-like. We've had very low inflation, very low interest rates, and growth at a moderate level. Mm. And that environment has really kept companies in a good place. Mm-hmm. Now, is that going to persist forever? And when we think about it, probably for the next 18 months or two years, that environment may remain reasonably benign, but markets are forward-looking. Yes. And so when we look out to 2019, 2020, the prospect of maybe a recession somewhere in the world, it begins to lift. Mm-hmm. So that the clock is ticking. And, and again, that's something they have to be thinking about. So, so the political risk, I mean, people just aren't factoring it in and, and you're comfortable with that? I think it's quite hard to factor in yeah. political risk because we haven't got any policies that follow that political yeah. risk. Yeah. Obviously, there were environments that would make it a lot more difficult for markets. Mm-hmm. For example, if Trump had have pulled an early trigger on a trade war with China, yeah. that would have been very difficult for mm-hmm. markets. Instead, he seems to have stepped back from that. He's quite good at changing his, you know, his point of attack, I think. Is what and hard called. to read. Yes, yeah, yeah. So another example would, what if Macron hadn't got in France? But of course he did, but yeah. what if he didn't? Mm. That could have created more uncertainty mm. for markets. Mm. Mm. And, and, and so, you know, looking forward, how would you describe your view? Like, you know, are you bullish or on you know, future returns and where things are going or just? I think we have to be concerned that markets have an elevated appreciation of the future. Mm, mm. We don't have to be overly fearful or concerned. I don't think there's any frightening aspect to where we are. But I would suggest that investors need to be considering their strategic objectives Mm. and certainly rebalancing their portfolios consistent with those objectives with lower return expectations mm-hmm. than in the past. Mm-hmm. And if I can just grab onto a data point, yeah. just say the US equity market has done 20% per annum for the last four to five years, approximately. Mm-hmm. Half that return has been from the significant push up in valuations. Yeah. So investors should at least halve, in my opinion, their expectations of return going forward and should anticipate more volatility. Yeah, so that's actually, you know, it's going to make the role for the financial planner and how they talk with their clients much more difficult, isn't it? Well, it's a straightforward message. But it's a very hard message to go and tell people. But, but still strategic objectives yeah. of clients will be met yeah. quietly through time because, but because the rebalancing that they're going to engage in will, will, I think, allow investors to have a time to consider. Yeah where they are. But if people have thought that this is a new normal and now they've got to wind back their expectations, it's going to be a challenging time. And, and it will be. We can see yeah. that there is a lot of optimism regarding you know, the world economy, optimism regarding markets, mm. and we're probably due for a little bit of a dampening in that optimism. Yes, yeah. Oh, well, it'll be interesting to see how it goes. Look, thank you very much for your time Thanks and for joining us today. Good. Cheers. Good Uh, joining me now is Murray Weatherston. Murray is a uh, founding member of CIFA and he's been in charge of uh, looking after a lot of the submissions the association's been making on, on the uh, Financial Advisors Review Act. 
And for those of you who follow Good Returns closely, you'll know that he quite regularly comments on articles around regulation. So Murray's going to talk to us today about um, the Financial Advisor Review Act and where it's going and some of his thoughts on it. So welcome, Murray. Thanks for joining us here. Good to be here. Thank you. Now tell me, um, one of the things that you said in your, your submission and when, when you started is that the officials weren't going to listen to you. What's your view on that? Do you think they've listened? Um, I'd be very surprised. Um, I think they've been uh, heavily captured by the big end of town. Um, the, the people doing the review didn't actually have very much experience in the financial sector, let alone financial advice, and I just think they've been captured completely by the, by the um, the beginning of town. So one of the issues is they just don't have the experience, do they? They're just policy analysts, they don't know anything. I don't, I don't know if any of them have a financial advisor. I've, uh, we did ask um, some of them early on in the piece, and no, I'm, I'm not even sure they had any financial product. Oh really? So yeah. so they're coming from a zero base. Absolutely. So, so how, can you actually, how can you actually draft new regulation when it's like that? Well, you have to ask the government that. But they seem to have taken the view that you don't need to know anything about the subject that you're going to regulate. All you need to know about is this magic thing called policy analysis. Policy analysis, mm -hmm. yeah, well, uh, interesting, isn't it? And sure. um, one of the views of, you know, one of the goals of, of the review is to try and get rid of some of these acronyms and make um, the financial advice system, if you like, um, more accessible to the public. Um, do you think where they're going is going to achieve that? Well, if changing the acronyms of AFA, RFA and QFE to FA, FAR and FAP um, makes a difference, then I'll be very, very surprised. Yeah. Um, clearly, I, I think what they've, um, they're, they're trying to do is to make it easier and easier for the big end of town, that's the banks, the insurance companies, you know, the big institutions, um, to sell their product to, the, um, to, their, to their customers. And you know, whereas we at the little end of town or the small end of town, what we're really in is trying to advise customers as to what we think is the best thing for them to do. So, so you were saying before that, you know, as long as they disclose all these things that they work for a bank, they're going to sell a bank product, etc., etc., they might get paid commission, they might get a bonus, that's right. and then they can just go and sell the product and that's, that's advice? That's right, it's called advice. And I think there's a chief, the Chief Justice of, or the retired Chief Justice of Australia, Sir Anthony Mason, uh, put it in words, you know, as well as I could put them. Talking about Australia, he said, our system of regulation proceeds on the footing that the advisor may be a product seller. Indeed, our system enables the product seller to adopt the disguise of a financial advisor and endows that disguise with the aura of legitimacy by calling him a, and if I put the New Zealand words in, a financial advice representative. And that, you know, sums it up to me. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty, pretty damning, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I mean, one of the things in the review was whether or not there should be a separation between sales and advice. I didn't have any problems with the bank selling its own product to its customers, so long as the customer knows that they're getting a sale. In the same way that if I go into a Toyota uh, car plant, um, I'm going to I'm going to be sold a Toyota. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. I, I don't expect to be sold a Ford or a Holden or whatever, and, and we know that's the way that mm. it works. But I think what what they're trying to do, and I, th you know, I like those words that um, endowing the disguise with the order with the aura of legitimacy. It's it's almost saying that what the banks are doing actually isn't selling. Yeah. yeah. When in, in fact we know it's well we know it's we, selling. Uh, totally. But, uh, but but the uh, 
the people in the review team just didn't seem to accept that at all. So, so it's like that boat has sailed, isn't it? The sales service advice thing. It's 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 nearly too late. Oh, I would I would say so. I'd I'd say the uh, the big shape of the of what the new regime will be is already written stone, mm. and the chances of getting any changes is you know well nigh zero. Yeah, you you you're also very hot on the on the website around the, putting the clients' interests first, and, and and I think you you made the comment that it was one of the areas that you actually agreed with the officials, but you could end up being on the wrong side of it. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Because I mean, what what the code has always said is you have to put the interests of the client first, and everybody's gone on saying yeah, that's what it is, but no one can actually define what exactly it is. It's, you know, it's one of these sayings where everybody, uh, underst- they don't understand it, they know what the words are, but they don't actually know what the words mean. And what the government, or what, what the um, exposure draft did, is codified what it meant. And it limited it to the circumstances where there was a conflict of interest between the client and the advisor. Hmm. And, and then the code committee itself came out with a pretty wishy-washy response. Well, the, the code committee came out and said, "Well, you know, um, no. What the what's in the exposure draft is actually uh, too narrow. It narrows down what we, you know, what we mean by putting the client's interest first. Well, they've had eight years and they've never defined it. And the things that I found absolutely amazing, given that this is going to go into a statute and it's going to be a statutory duty for advisors." They said things like um, it's aspirational. It's aspirational. So it's only an aspirational yeah. goal. Um, it's a philosophical goal, and the, the most amazing one to me was saying it was actually never intended to be argued in a court of law anyway. Now, to me, if I have a statutory duty, I'm liable to be pinged for failing to meet that duty. I, I actually want to know what that duty is. I don't want to find myself in a situation where what I thought it was. It wasn't because someone else thought it meant something else. And and and, and a lot of advisors haven't engaged in this debate, and, and and yet that's to me. I would have thought it was one of the most critical parts yeah. of, of the legislation. Yeah, I ha- I hate to be critical of my uh, fellow advisors, but I think a lot of them have just sat back and uh, th- either thought uh, someone else will solve this for me, yeah. or taken an even more pessimistic view. Was it doesn't really matter uh, whether I get. Engagement. I mean, that's the Brent Sheath of you. Is it's wasting your time doing it, so just don't do it. Mm. Um, but I think advisors could find you know, themselves uh, facing, having to face things that they don't really like when the final shape is known. But then, but then, you know, they could also end up in court quite easily. Oh, yeah. But I th- again, I think some of them are saying, "Oh, it won't be me. It'll be it'll, it'll be that other it'll be that other person will be there." And if they get caught, well, that's that's their fault. Yeah, but that's like, you know, when those two cars have a head-on collision, I say, you know, it's never going to happen to me, but it was yeah, the other guy's fault. Yeah, that's right. yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so coming to the code committee, um, I understand a lot of people put their names forward. Um, you got the Don't Come Monday letter. Well, well, we, didn't, we didn't actually get the Don't Come Monday letter. We got the letter, you wasted your time because we were never going to consider you anyway. But shouldn't have they told you that at the start? Well, that's what I, I've yeah. made the point to them about that. And, and to um, to their credit, they've actually said it was a fair point. Um, but you, they won't reimburse <laughs> you for your time. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, no. Uh, who do you think should be on the code committee? How should it be made up of? Well, I mean, I'd hate to think that it's made up of you know academics, um, do-gooders, and uh, people who have no real understanding of what the industry is about. You know, I hope there's a 
decent uh, practitioner um, representation in it so that you know what the code comes up with is actually sensible and workable rather than some theoretical mm. stuff that somebody's got out of some journal somewhere yeah uh, should should there be any um, consistency or continuity between the current code committee and this one the new one um, well I know I know <coughs> that there are actually some members of the existing code committee who applied to, for the new one and got don't come Monday letters Oh really? Yeah. So 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 it's not automatic. I know I know the current chairman of the the chairman of the current code is um, at least in with a chance for the new code. Mm. Um, but I don't actually think it matters that the individuals be the same so long as the approach is the same. Approach has so a consistency of approach rather than people. Because if yeah. the if the code committee came in or the code working group rather came in and said, oh, we're now going to have a completely different structure for the code. We're going to throw out everything for that's been done for investment advisors, um, we're going to throw all that out and we're going to start from scratch through and I think that would be a bad move. My hope is that they use the model of what they've got for investment advisors and, and take the, the um, clauses for ethics and client care and CPT Mm-hmm. And extend them across to the other disciplines. Um, it, it makes a lot of sense to me that you know authorised financial advisors have to do all these things, but everyone else giving advice in other parts of the industry, whether it's insurance or mortgages, don't have to live by the same standards. I, I don't understand that. No, and on equitable grounds, that doesn't seem right. Yeah. I mean, if, if investment advisors had to meet level five, then I would think mortgage advisors have to meet level five. Um, general insurance advisors have to meet level five. Uh, personal insurance advisors have to meet level five, and so on. So, so basically, level five should be the minimum across the industry. Is that your position? That would be my position, and it's it's really based on the fact that that's what it was for investment advisors, mm. right? So, therefore, everyone else should have to be that. That the issue then becomes, well, what are the alternative qualifications that they'll accept? Yeah. Um, and that's where I suspect a lot of argy bargy been. But if if that if that Debate is actually run by the um, by the academics and the um, you know NZ, or skills New Zealand mm. people. And also, I reckon I'll get it wrong. Yeah, yeah, that's, that, that that would be a tragedy, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's you know one of the other issues which has been quite a topical one is you know this transitional um, licensing period through to, to, to licensing. It seems it's very um, very unclear how you're going to get to the after the transitional stage and what you actually have to do. Do you have any views on that? Well, I think it's clear that from February 2019, if you're in the game as a firm, Mm. you'll get a transitional license. It's sort of what I'd call, if you can put breath on the mirror, uh, you'll get your transitional license. You'll then have two years to apply for your full license. The thing is, what's not known is what are you going to have to do to get the full license? And I think the reason they have that transitional period, they'll hate me for saying it, but I think it's because they couldn't actually get their head around it. Yeah. So what they've done is they've kicked the can down the road for a couple of years and they'll figure it out along the way. Sure, that's not quite the best way to do it. Yeah. it, it it's, it's going to be fascinating to see you know, how that goes. It seems to me that you know, what we're doing here in New Zealand is, is following Australia a little bit and moving the licensing from the individual to the firm. Um, is that the right approach? Well, um, in 2008, they thought the right approach was to authorise the individual because that's where all the responsibility will be. If you look at accountants, that's individual responsibility. If you look at lawyers, that's account- individual responsibility. If you look at doctors, it's individual responsibility. Financial advisors, 
It was individual authorization. Now it's actually going to go to firm licensing. And I suspect that's done for the benefit of the regulator because there are fewer firms to regulate than there are advisors to regulate. Oh, absolutely. I mean, they, they, they just, I, I guess I'd suggest that there'd be no way that the regulator would have the resources to actually do all the individuals. Yeah, and maybe they don't have the resources to do all the firms either. So what do, I, what do they do there? Uh, resource up or um, take a shortcut. Yeah, yeah. Tommy, um, you know, who's got the most to worry about in, in these changes coming up? Well, my pick is that probably won't be much change for AFAs, mm. right? The investment advisor people, mm. because they've already been through it. I think the biggest change is going to be for the registered but not authorised financial advisors, the people that everyone's called RFAs. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think they're going to find for the first time they have a qualification, right, which will mm. be level five. Mm. Um, well, I, I would argue it should be level five on the grounds that that's where investment advisors were. Mm -hmm. um, they're going to be facing a code of conduct for the first time. I think there's much more change going to occur for the non-investment people than yeah. there is for the investment people. So, and, and, and it seems to me a lot of those people have had their head in the sand throughout this review process. They, well, it, well, you know that I've actually tried to yeah. wake them up. Yeah. Oh, look, I've tried too, but yeah. it's... Um, I think it's easier getting my child out, my teenager out of bed <laughs> uh, than yeah. some of these guys. And, and, and you know, I don't want to be too critical, but I think IFA and PAA um, didn't really represent you know, those people too well. I, you know, my criticism of them is they were spending too much time in the review process trying to carve out a position for themselves in the regulatory yeah. scheme going forward than actually to represent the members. Yeah. How much do you think the industry has spent on these, these regulatory changes? Well, I had a guess a while ago that for AFAs, um, up until now, it's something over $100 million. And the cost-benefit? Um, the benefit, I think, is very light at this point in time. I mean, if the, if the consumer is still confused, uh, if they're still saying they don't know where they need to go to get investment advice and all the rest of it, then there can't have been too much benefit. Yeah, yeah. And, and so I, I would say, you know, I, I would score it that the cost has way, way exceeded the benefits to date. And look, it's not impossible that, right. that going forwards, the cost of the, the other 25,000 people getting up to speed with what the regulations are, the cost of that, that won't be insignificant. As, as it'll be uh, as much bigger as universe, so it's going to be much more. So, so personally, you know, you've put a lot of your own time and effort into this. What's yeah. driven you to do that? Um, part of it was it was going to influence the environment of where what I had to do in my own firm. Mm -hmm. uh, but I guess partly, you know, as a sixty-four-year-old uh, advisor looking back, it's it's actually giving something back to the profession. Yeah. Um, oh, you put in a huge amount of time. So, and, and you know, finally, I mean, a lot of your focus has been on the small end of town. Yeah. W what do you think the future is for, for that part of the industry? Oh, I think it's very poor. Mm -hmm. um, I think going forwards, look, if I was 40 years of age, right, I've been a sole practitioner. If I, if, if I was 40 years of age as a sole practitioner, I would say there is no way in Hades that I have a chance of continuing to age 60 in my current shape, yeah. and it, it says the cost is just too large. Mm. Um, the requirements that they seem to think you have to have. I mean, as a sole practitioner, mm. should I need procedure manuals? No. 
I would well, argue, I would argue not. But I, dollars to donuts, the regulator would require a sole practitioner to have a procedure manual. Well, we've seen that through, you know, what they've done with AFAs and what they've done through DIMS and things yeah. like that, that apparently everything has to be codified and written in manuals yeah. and yeah. stuff. And that's so, that to me, that's more so that when the regulator comes in to monitor you, they can actually see what you do. And it's because they don't know what advisors do that they actually need, you know, a manual for them to actually go yeah. and tick to say, in your manual you said you do A, B and C. I can see you've done A, show me how where you've done B, show you what you've done C. Whereas if they knew something about the industry, they'd be able to go in and instantly see whether the person was, you know, do, doing what they said they were. It's always seemed to me that financial advice is as much an art as it is a science. Oh, well, it's not a science. It, it really is an art. Yeah. And it's, it's actually a lot of financial advising is based around relationships. Mm -hmm. I mean, the best definition I've ever seen of what financial planning is, it says it's a process whereby we determine whether and how best we can achieve our lifestyle objectives through a sensible use of our financial resources. Yeah. Right? That's not a science. No, no. That, that, that is clearly art. Mm. And people are different. That's actually a very good description. I haven't heard that yeah, one before. No. You can borrow it. I can borrow, borrow it, thank you. <laughs> uh, the, the royalties will come. Yeah. So, and, 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 and I guess in the future, you know, with this review, we've got a few dates coming up so people might be able to set their retirement dates, That's right. so, I, yeah. I guess, yeah? yeah. Absolutely. Mm. I think a lot of people will say, hey, this is, a lot of people at the small end of town will actually say, hey, this is just getting too hard. Um, so, so I tried my best, but I just can't beat City Hall. Yeah, so at the end of the day, the big end of town wins. Oh, absolutely. And it becomes a corporatised business. That's right. And, yeah. and, and what happens, I think, is people, you know, the big end of town sells their product through, you know, the guise of advice. Yeah. Um, it just doesn't seem right to me. No, no. Look, it's going to be fascinating to see where it turns up, and there's been some um, really interesting stuff on there. So thank you very much for your time, and, and I know a lot of people have appreciated all the work and effort you've put in, um, and also, you know, getting into the, um, uh, the debates on the site as, as well. So it's yeah. been great. Thank you, Murray. Thanks, yeah. Joel. Cheers. And my final guest today is Julian McCormick. Julian's an investment specialist for Platinum Asset Management in Sydney. Platinum's are pretty big, particularly by New Zealand standards. They've got $25 billion of funds under management and it's the firm which was set up by Kia Nielsen, who was very well known in New Zealand many years ago. So thank you for joining us from Sydney, Julian. Pleasure, Philip. Yeah, Tommy, look, um, just thinking about some of the things going on at the moment, what are, what are some of the investment themes you're seeing which excite you at the moment? One of the big ones which we're really interested in is recovery in Europe, mm -hmm. which, which I think people might be, might so be surprised So Europe, by. people would be surprised, yeah, I was yeah. going to say, I'm, I'm surprised, yeah. Exactly, so, so the picture they have, people will have in their mind is, Europe's a place that never grows, never changes, very, very hide-bound, you know, it's, it's hopeless this place, right? And it's, it's, it's useful to remember a, a, a phrase I think was said by Tony Benn, which is never waste a good crisis. Uh, yeah. And Germany hasn't wasted this crisis. Mm. Mm. So all across Europe now we see improved current accounts, very, very competitive places. Mm. Spain's just added 2 million jobs in two years in, mm. in an economy of 40 million people. Yeah, so you're really seeing this place having turned the corner mm -hmm. and earnings are way behind where they've been you know, previously and way behind where they've got to in the US. Yeah. So you, you don't have to set records here. 
you can just have a cyclical upturn and, and do very well. We're selective, mm -hmm. so we don't want all of it. But I was just going to say, you know, Europe's a, a pretty big place. Pretty big place. How, you know, how do you, exactly. how do you tackle that? Exactly. Those, yeah. So we don't want a whole lot of the defensive consumer stuff. So your Nestle's, your Racket Ben Keys, mm -hmm. these, these are traded like bonds and, yeah. and are pretty expensive yeah. and slow growers. The kind of stuff we've wanted uh, are beaten up industrials. So think about the manufacturing base of Europe. There's a lot of machine tools, a lot of exports into, into the emerging world, mm -hmm. and they've done very well. Mm -hmm. um, but then also, the financials. I was just going to say financial yeah. services. I, I did an interview with Mark Wilson, a, a, ki a young a Kiwi guy who now runs Avia, you know, the big Great. crowd in, 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 in the UK, and, yep. and talking to him about the turnaround of that business was um, quite stunning. Yeah, yeah. So, we, yeah, so we see this all across Europe. Yeah. We're selective, so we don't want to go and buy Deutsche Bank. We, yeah. don't, know what's, we don't know what's on the mm. balance sheet. Mm. So we want you know, the ASBs, or you know, the, the big, boring, universal banks yeah, of yeah, Europe yeah. in good markets. Mm. So what we've seen in Europe is a whole lot of you know, Credit Suisse, UBS, Credit Agricole, all these guys are pulled out of fringe markets, and they leave very uncompetitive, cosy scenarios in places with loan losses falling and loan growth rising. So it's a bit like buying the Aussie banks in the 90s. Yeah. So think about how that's gone. Won't go as well, you know, we won't get a China boom, but it could be pretty prospective. And they're very cheap. Yeah, so that's interesting. And, and you know, just, um, you can't not talk about Europe and add in political risk. I mean, yes. we've had a lot of talk, obviously, Brexit, you've got, yep. we just had the French elections, yep. you know, do, should people be worried about that? Look, I, I think they should in the sense that these are messy political democratic processes. But let's, let's just step back and, 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 and put it in context. Go back 20 or 30 years, Europe was a place that had three or four active terrorist armies. right? So we had ETA, the IRA, the Red Brigades, on and on. Now we're sort of freaked out by democratic processes where people are having a say. That strikes us as a bit weird. Uh, yeah. and, and, and so we, we I, kind I of... I hadn't thought of it that way. Yeah, we kind of <laughs> want to bet people do you think the politics win or the economics? Mm, mm. And, and they're circular, no, no doubt. But if you get momentum, in a place like Spain's a great example, if you get momentum in terms of the, the economies, the politics, they won't look after themselves necessarily, but they'll improve over time. And, and, and we're, we're actually sort of seeing this. Yeah, okay. And just flipping on to the other part of the globe, China, you've got some views on that. I mean, Yeah, we've got a lot of money in China. Yeah. And again, it's a part of the world that really scares people. But what, what we see there is a place that looks very likely to muddle through rather than collapse with areas of real strength. Mm. So, so think about what they've been telling you for five years. They mm. want to rebalance. Mm. They don't want to be a sort of uh, cheap uh, manufacturer to the world. Mm. They want to um, have very strong consumption. That probably means a strong currency. And they want to be much more domestically focused than externally. Now, and, and that throws up some great opportunities. It's a big mindset change for investors, isn't it? It needs to be. It hasn't happened yet. So What's going to be the trigger for that? Very hard to say. We never know triggers, but we only know states. And what yeah. we know, you, you raise an excellent point, which is that no one's there. It, mm. it is the biggest economy mm. in the world. Mm. I mean, forget about the US being the biggest yeah. economy in the world. I mean, that's just crazy. Yeah. China has a you know, billion three, billion four people, ten times the steel industry, five times the aluminium industry. And if you adjust the purchasing power, it's by far the biggest economy. Mm. So you, it, you, you've got to be there, don't you? you? You've got to be there. Yeah. And no one is. And, and, and there and, must be opportunities. And yeah. think about what it was like 10 years ago, Philip. Mm. You know, we all knew that China was great. It was going to grow up 12 forever. Well, the market was on 35 times earnings. We had no money there. Mm. Now everyone thinks this place is a loser. Hang on. It's just raised a billion people out of poverty in a generation. Yeah. It can get the odd thing right. Is it perfect? No, not at all. Mm. Are we going to find some pretty good stocks there? Yeah, yeah, we think we will. Because this is a market that's halved 
in an economy that's doubled yeah. in size. So you spent quite a lot of time on China? Yeah, yeah a lot of time. Yeah, yeah, a lot of time. Yeah. So we've got an Asian fund, which is you know, 40% uh, China, that's, that's 2 billion Aussie just in, you know, just in, in China alone across our funds, uh, adding in the international fund, which is 20% China as well. So we spend a lot of time yeah. uh, analysing it, thinking it, thinking about it and visiting it. Yeah. So it, it, it's a, a real focus for us. Yeah. Oh, that's excellent. Look, thank you very much for your time, Julian. That was, that was really interesting. You, you've right. certainly given me some things to think about. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, we hope so. Thanks yeah. a lot, Philip. Yeah. Cheers. Thanks thank you. Me.